Welcome to another edition of Market Impact Insights, your podcast source for business leadership perspectives to help your business grow. Hear from experts in marketing, sales, business strategy, and more with practical advice for business success. Make sure you won't miss the latest episodes by visiting marketimpactnow.com. Now, here's your host, Dan Albaum. Welcome back, everyone, to another amazing episode of Market Impact Insights. One of the things that I focus on in my new book, The Impact Makers, is the importance of relationships and also on leveraging data as part of that journey to exceptional leadership. And we're going to explore today an aspect of leadership, which is really getting intelligent thought leadership and counsel from people that know industry, that know channel. And we're going to speak with one of the world's best, one of the world's most accomplished analysts today. Jay McBain is sought out. He's a keynote speaker. He's a thought leader. He provides future industry guidance to some of the leading technology companies around the world. He has had a lengthy, successful career in various executive channel sales, marketing, and strategy roles with companies like IBM, Lenovo, Autotask, Channelize, and then on the analyst side at Forrester, and now Canalis. He's the chief analyst for Global Channels. This is a world-leading analyst firm that focuses on channels, partnerships, alliances, and ecosystems. Jay is also a futurist and is a long-standing member of the World Future Society. He is a recognized expert in the future of channels, alliances, partnering ecosystems, and the study of emerging go-to-market models. We're going to explore this analyst life, this successful life that Jay has and what he's bringing and what he's seeing in terms of exceptional leadership in the context of channels and ecosystems. Jay, welcome to Market Impact Insights. Well, thank you so much for having me and that uh, wonderful introduction. So, Jay, we want to go back and look at this very interesting path that you've had that has led into the analyst world. And you've had hands-on experience in building and growing corporate businesses and then your own business as an entrepreneur. What sparked your interest to, to move over into this analyst role? Yeah, it's a great question. And, you know, 28 years of, of a career kind of uh, leading up to being an analyst. I go back before I even started my career. I grew up with an accountant as a father, uh, always very data-driven and, and numbers-driven and, and things like that. So I think I grew up with a left brain, you know, kind of thinking, uh, a little bit of systems thinking as well, going through school and then college and stuff, trying to figure out how the system works and, and all, you know, things connecting behind the scenes and stuff. So doing analysis from an early age, not even knowing you were doing analysis. Uh, I've got many stories, but you know, one in particular, I didn't drink um, for not the reasons anybody would think, but it was just purely financial because um, I wanted to buy a motorcycle when I was 16. I never started drinking again, but you know, at IBM, it was one of those things where you know, if you're a salesperson and not drinking, a lot of the deals are done at two in the morning on a cocktail napkin. And could you really be trusted if you weren't drinking with the customer and, and things like that? And it, it forced me at that time to be a transactional seller, a little bit of a different, not a relationship type person. So I looked at a, my territory, 497 accounts, top down. And, and I looked at it um, 
and I executed very differently as a salesperson, which probably more like an analyst would mm-hmm. than, than somebody out there doing. So it's actually been with me all the way along. After I was a CEO of a channel software company, uh, for me, it was the next logical step. Fascinating. And so you're, you're in this, this world of analysts, you're dealing with some of these leading technology companies, um, powerful leaders that are, are seeking counsel, but I know there are a lot of opinions. There's a lot of perceptions about analysts. What are some of the biggest misconceptions you think are out there around uh, your world and, and what you represent? And probably the biggest misconception is the different difference between a consultant and an analyst. I'll joke with people that, you know, my time with these very, very senior people uh, spans about 30 minutes and it's high impact. It's, it's, um, you know, it, it's very much, um, uh, very, very engaged, you know, back and forth. It can get a little heated as well because it's obviously under NDA and it's behind closed doors. And I may know more information than, you know, your average person uh, from inside uh, where a consultant may come and spend six months uh, with that um, customer client um, based on the outcome of that analyst call. You know, an analyst might point, point at some of the marketing or sales or customer success or product related operational, strategic, financial issues and how they're not aligned and how maybe their competition, who we also spend a lot of time with, um, is doing it better. And then the project that comes from that, it's let's roll up our sleeves and let's go fix these things, you know, turns into a consulting project, which is a whole different set of skills with Gantt charts and obviously project management expertise and, and things like that, that drive to an outcome and have a bunch of different parallel lanes with dependencies and milestones and things like that, which isn't really what an analyst uh, does at all or skills. Yeah. There's really in that very compact time period, say 30 minutes. So there's a level of objectivity. Isn't, isn't there Jay that that you're bringing And that's the difference where the consultant might have this deeper relationship and um, it, because it's going to be longer, uh, it's a little more subjective, but that the analyst is, is coming in very objective, kind of outside the walls and, and kind of looking at things from, from a totally objective perspective. Yeah, probably much deeper and much more narrow than a consultant would. Uh, so when you think about an engagement, it might be in a certain line of business, you know, in my case, channels, uh, some sort of partner marketing, partner sales, partner operations, uh, partner finance type of um, line of business role. It might be in a specific sub-industry out of 297 sub-industries. We might be talking security inside of SaaS, for example. It comes at a different geographic level. How you speak about security in SaaS around 196 different countries, different continents, different distribution models, you know, becomes important. Uh, Segment-wise, if you're talking to a client that's up in the big tech, um, you know, trillion-dollar valuation, or if you're talking to a, one of the 4,300 security startups is obviously a different conversation. Uh, talking about the product level. So inside security, those 4,300 companies, there's seven major layers of security, 17 layers below that. So how you nuance the conversation specifically to what they're doing. And then finally, as you're looking out at the, um, the business model, you know, as that's executing, you know, from a go-to-market in managed security or project-based or 
uh, in a subscription consumption model, in a product-led growth model, which is all the rage right now, usage-based, value-based models, uh, the growth through marketplaces. So right there, I gave you six different you know, layers of nuance to the conversation. The analysts might actually, there's 35 million um, permutations to that, by the way. I'll give you some analysts. Oh, big number. But, but in that 35 million, you might actually find the analyst that's, that's, you know, right in your swim lane. And that analyst isn't going to have the time to spend six months at a holiday inn down the street from you in implementation, but you don't need that. You need to get to the core and you need that specific time with somebody who has the expertise. And an analyst, by the way, has a lot of time as well, because we don't have a day job like the client would. So our day job is connecting dots and getting even deeper with their competition and with their customer than they could because they have to run a team and they have to run internal meetings. And there's obviously internal KPIs and internal politics. And, you know, if you had somebody on the outside that had, you know, eight to 10 hours a day to, you know, double and triple click and go deeper in the things that you care about, that's what an analyst can do. And that's the benefit um, that, that a client would see. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Now, in transitioning to the work you do now, as you're advising leaders around the world, what have you found the most challenging? Have there been surprises along the way as you've made that transition? Uh, there is. And, you know, one of the things a good analyst does is a little bit um, shadows the customer. And, and you might have a customer in um, panic mode. Uh, you know, last month we had 200,000 layoffs. Uh, we're going through some deep transformations in terms of how they run their job and how they can get ahead and stuff. Uh, you might have, uh, you know, a customer that's just steady state, you know, going to perfume up the program again and put a couple new pixels on the page and, and, and you know, announce it again in January as something new um, and everything in between. So a, a good analyst shadowing that customer and, and being able to um, come in at the right altitude, and this will come up a lot, is an analyst will either sit in three different altitudes. And I'll, I'll explain later, you know, why each is important and why there's, you know, money to be made as an analyst in each all three. The first altitude is at 50,000 feet. You know, basically at the top level, you know, $4.3 trillion was bought by businesses and governments in tech last year. Security made up 63 billion of that. And basically going from the top down and, and talking about where the industry is going to be in three, five, 10 years from now. And, and, Doing that and working with the end in mind is a complete layer. Most analysts get this wrong. You know, about 90% of analysts can't speak at that level. They either don't have the confidence, they don't have the data, they don't have the uh, approach to their job to be able to really be industry movers, industry shakers, as you kicked off and, and your book talking about the um, these type of roles. The next layer, layer of altitude, we'll kind of say at the 30,000 foot level, is the frameworks, the templates, the playbooks, making something repeatable off the shelf that, you know, each one of the 35,000 vendors that are trying to do this part of their channel program in the past have created some sort of, you know, repeatable and scalable thing that an analyst can provide. You know, plug in the dots, plug in the data, and here's, you know, 80% of it's already done, roughly right. And we can focus on that last 20% to make it differentiated or to make it, you know, 10% better than your competition. 
but let's not spend our time writing the book report. It's 80% done. Let's focus our time on making it better. And then finally, and this is again, a lot of analysts can do that. I'm going to say, you know, 90% of analysts that I know can do that stuff pretty well. Great PowerPoint slides, great, you know, plug-inable type of, type of things. Uh, the third and final layer of altitude is at ground level, landing the plane. And your ability to kind of predict the future, roll up your sleeves and start talking about names, faces, and places is again, hard to find in the analyst community. You know, somehow it's not academic. It's not, um, and you know, I've worked for big firms, you know, it, it's frowned upon to talk about specific lists of things, you know, the 14 spheres of influence and there's 13 others outside of analysts. So a client, you know, may read magazines. There's 85 magazines. They might be in social groups. There's 143 of those. They might listen to podcasts like this one. There's a hundred great ones. They might uh, be in a peer group. Uh, they might be in an association. So here's all the other spheres of influence. But in that, you know, one of those 35 million lanes that I talked about, the ability to come down and say, listen, here is the ecosystem. Here is everything that people read. Here's everything they listen to the places they go. And most importantly, here are the hundred smartest, most capable, most visible super connectors, super influencers in that space that you need to know. They need to know you. They need to know enough to be dangerous. And by the way, if you know you can find 20 or 30% of them that'll be up there on their platform saying nice things about you, that is industry changing strategy at the names, faces, and places level. Yeah, it's really about being a connector. And I want to circle back to something you said earlier, Jay, where you were talking about analysts having time. And so it's a little different than being, let's say, in a senior operating role inside of a company that from a schedule and, and just how you use your time is different. Uh, and it's probably got to take a lot of discipline, right? If it's not as structured in the sense of having an operating role, where there are these structured one-on-one -on -one meetings or team meetings, but it's different, isn't it? How do you approach that to just make sure you're maximizing the productivity out of every waking minute that you have? Yeah, absolutely. And, and there's ways that analysts are measured. So, you know, you could talk about KPIs. You know, we have something called service units, the way that we're, our demand is translated into dollars for the firms we work for. Um, the analysts with the most service units and it's stack ranked from one to 10,000, you know, you can see it on the spreadsheet, uh, is a key determinant, uh, you know, what makes a great analyst. There's also readership, you know, who is engaged in your content and, and how broadly in your industry or in your geography, are you driving the, the, the way forward for, for clients? Um, and a number of other, you know, KPIs um, as well. So that's one way to look at it. I look at it a different way. The great analysts, and remember back to system thinking, the first day I was an analyst, and as I started to study some of the greats from years gone by, um, I felt that they spent their time broken into three, a third, a third, a third, a third of their life is spent with clients, mm -hmm. deep into conversations, driving forward, learning being in those inquiries, being in briefings and trying to suck up as much information because that's stuff that you can't read on the internet. There's no Wikipedia page. It's a lot of it's under NDA. So you would never repeat it. 
but you're absorbing it uh, as you're, you know, creating your view of the world and your, you know, advice for others, which you would never disclose anything confidential, but you would normalize it or, or somehow collect all the data and, and make it um, neutral uh, before you ever, you know, um, recommended something. But that client work is absolutely cri critical. The second third of your job is literally in research. And it, it's writing, it's connecting dots, it's out there, you know, kind of sharing some interesting uh, dots connected that no one else would have the time to do because they don't, you know, again, they have day jobs. Um, so that's the next third. The final third, and again, a lot of analysts get this wrong because it leads to the other two and leads to KPIs and success is being absolutely visible in the market. Mm -hmm. You know, if you are an analyst across those six things I talked about in an industry, in a geography, in a uh, product set, in a segment of the market, in a business model, wherever you're an analyst, whichever um, uh, subject you have, you should be literally one of the top 100 super connectors in your space because you have the data, you have the insight and you should be sharing it publicly. So in my industry, in the channel, there's 250 speeches I could give per year and I could be in Vegas every other week at the big events and the magazine mm -hmm. events and yeah. the peer groups. And so I choose to do 50 of those a year. So I limit that time. Um, but there's also a hundred podcasts uh, in my part of the world that I publish um, that, that I want to participate in and to share with those audiences. There's obviously social groups and subreddits and discord channels and Slack channels. There's peer groups and user groups and associations that I want to sit on the board of. There are magazines that I want to be engaged in the conversation and the journalism, the good journalism that's happening out there. There's the vendor communities. In my world, there's uh, you know 35,000 vendors who have channel programs, so it's a big audience. Distributors who are very powerful. You know, last year we had you know, TD Cynics, for example, come together. They're twice the size of Coca-Cola. They're twice the size of Nike or three times the size of McDonald's. I mean, these are big companies. Yeah. So participating in distribution and, and how things work is, you know, another part of the spheres of influence, but an analyst should be public one third of the time and driving, whether it's on TV or radio or out there in the, in digital, uh, making sure that um, uh, the opinions and, and the predictions and the pontification and things is more data-based than opinion-based. Mm-hmm. Well, now putting your client hat on, what do you think are the keys to getting the best return from engaging an analyst like yourself? Well, the first thing is you, you've got to, you know, whether you're a large client and you have an AR function, analyst relations function, or you're a smaller company, the first thing you've got to find the right person. And, and great AR people know this that you, know, you have really big firms with thousands or tens of thousands of analysts, your chances of hitting there are pretty good. But once you get into those six lanes that I talked about, you might find that that particular firm doesn't have that piece shored up because they haven't got the right person or that person left or they haven't you know, found the ability to come and help you at 50,000, at 30,000 and land the plane. And, and to good AR people that you talk to behind the scenes, 
you know, they'll talk in those layers of um, uh, detail. And hey, do we have a good identity, security, mm -hmm. Germany-based, blah, 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 blah. And sometimes it's one of the big firms will have that person. Sometimes it's one of these smaller, you know, um, boutique firms in Germany that employs that person. That person may have come from a big firm and decided to go out on their own, or they might just have that person. So um, it becomes a very personal business to connect to value. So we're in highly disruptive times, very dynamic, a uh, lot and a lot of change happening uh, with technology out in the channel. So from your perspective, what should today's technology leaders be thinking about when they're looking to generate not just short-term growth, but sustainable growth? And, and where do you see ecosystems, channel strategies coming into all that? Yeah, we're going through a major change, uh, a 40-year change from August the 12th, 1981, that first IBM PC that was sold through a dealer uh, till today. Uh, we're moving away from this purely transactional focused channel. We're at a point now where external research would say 76% of our CEOs and our boards think that, um, you know, ecosystems are the most important thing and doing it, you know, there, there's no way to do it alone in the future. And it doesn't matter what industry you're in. If you're building cars, selling pharmaceuticals, banking, insurance, manufacturing, or tech industry, everyone is becoming a tech, uh, you know, a tech company. Um, and you know, software is eating the world. You're hearing all, a lot about this cross industry, but really underneath all of that is partnerships and, and how you work. One plus one equals three. How you co-innovate together. How you create value together how you leverage network effects, how partners have a outsized role in those first 28 moments of your customer's journey before they make vendor selection, how partners play an outsized role at the point of sale, whether they take the money or not. If they don't make them take the money, and you know, one of the biggest, fastest growing parts of our industry today is marketplaces, 24% of marketplace deals today are partners pressing buy on behalf of the customer. So while they're not the reseller, they're literally got their finger on the trigger, the finger on the mouse, you know, clicking buy. And then every business that's moving on to subscription and consumption models, which happens to be everyone right now, every 30 days forever, driving adoption and stickiness and upsell and cross-sell and enrichment, you know, in a customer journey now that never ends, it's really partner-driven. There's seven partners that the average mid-sized customer trusts, mid-sized and higher trust. And figuring out who those seven are and, and figuring out ways that you can work together where all boats rise is the future of partnerships. And while you have to drive a great resale program and have the structure there to uh, serve companies who take the customer's money on your behalf, uh, there are you know, at least six other partners at every one of your customers and every one of your prospects that you now have to widen the aperture to focus on, speak their language, build programs around them, invest in technology that can monitor, measure, and manage those moments, and, and really expand your thinking. And that's probably the biggest transformational change. And that what carries me through the day. I probably have 16 of those conversations per day. Yeah, this idea of authentic, trusted relationships as part of uh, a strong partnership certainly comes into play. And 
as you are working with um, many of these leaders, and as we talk about in the impact makers, there are some real drivers to exceptional leadership. You've had that inside access to see leaders at work, kind of how they consume information, how they take advice or not take advice as the case might be. But what do you feel are the most important ingredients for the truly great leaders you have encountered? Yeah, I mean, leadership means a, a lot of things. And, uh, you know, for me, um, leadership is this motivation for others to do, you know, exceptional things. And and if you feel you're part of a team, and we've all played, you know, on teams, uh, you know, in, in our youth and maybe even today, and, and we've maybe felt and hopefully we felt, you know, what, what it's like to be on a winning team, what it's like to be on a losing team, even worse, you know, being on a mediocre team. Because, you know, on a winning or losing team, you kind of, you know, get what what, uh, what the differences are and what great leadership means uh, to us as individuals. On a mediocre team, you know, sometimes you don't know what you don't know and um, it's wasted time because um, there's an ambivalence there. So uh, those are the things when I look back at great leaders, whether they were teachers, whether they were coaches, whether they were business leaders that, that I look up to, um, they all had this... Um, you know, approach where, you know, they, they, they drove to that end goal and, and it was a mission. It was a, you were part of something bigger than you. And, and you, you know, for the fear of letting others down on your team, you know, you gave it your all, you, you know, everyone was all in and um, it's, a, it's difficult. And, and I know you write books on this subject, but it's, it's a difficult uh, set of psychology, different set of actions and tactics and other things that, you know, go into what makes up that chemistry. It, it is. And, you know, we talk a lot in the book about this servant leader mindset, which is really focused more around empowering team members uh, as opposed to kind of command and control models. And so I'm sure you can relate to that too, which is it can be difficult to set the ego aside as a leader. It's not just about you. It's not only about you, but it's really about how you can lift and elevate team performance. So it's just a really challenging dynamic. Yeah. And how to do that situationally. There are specific times in, in times of crisis that command and control is required. And, and there's times, um, you know, obviously that uh, in times of hyper growth, that it's the opposite of command and control that's uh, required. So it's not a, you know, you don't come in typecast as something as a leader. You've got to assess the situation, assess the team, assess, you know, a lot of situational awareness. And, and what made, you know, a, a great leader through, you know, times of great crisis, you know, a lot of times uh, they, they couldn't lead in, in other circumstances and vice versa. Now, you are giving advice or asked to give advice uh, all the time. I want to flip the script, Jay, and ask you, what is the best piece of business advice you have ever received? Oh, wow. So I mentioned, um, you know, I spent 17 years at IBM and Lenovo. A lot of the great pieces of advice, you know, came very, very early in my career. Um, and, you know, sometimes that's at a branch and a branch manager level and things like that. But, um, you know, one of the early pieces of advice is, uh, you know, for people starting their careers, not to get too overzealous and, and rush out and have to, 
And I, I was, you know, that young kid in a branch that said, you know, I got to go meet all the CIOs. I got to meet all the owner principals of our partners. I got to, you know, I got to get into this market. I got to, and, and then, you know, it's just this idea of slowing down a little bit yeah. and saying, again, situational, you know, you're in the, effectively the mail room here. You're that, you know, just out of college whippersnapper. We want you to focus at our clients and at our partners at all the other whippersnappers kind of within your age range. You know, they're in the mailroom too. And, you know, one day, 20, 30 years from now, they'll be the CIO and they'll be the owner principal of partners. And, but, but if they come to your wedding and if you do family barbecues and if your kids grow up together and you take that longer approach situationally, and we've got everything else covered because 30 years ago, I was doing the same thing when I was in the mailroom. And that's why I've got these CIO relationships that I can wake them out of bed at two in the morning, the night before an RFP closes to get it switched into our favor. That took 30 years to do. And that was a, you know, one of those advices that you wouldn't expect, you know, watching movies or reading books and things like that. But um, understanding that um, the, the world works and the channel works as a system. And, you know, there are people that gain the system. There's people that, you know, do really well in the system and things like that, but understand that there are, rules to the game and that this is somewhat linear in the way that it works. Yeah, it is challenging. Today's world, Jay, everything seems so real time because we're the, how we consume information now through our mobile devices and we use these social channels and everything just seems instantaneous. The idea of applying patience, it just sometimes it's just really difficult in today's world to exhibit that patience. Absolutely. It's one of those uh, areas that's of interest to me. It's not exactly, you know, as an analyst, uh, an area that I subscribe to study, but um, in the channel, you know, we've got 35,000 vendors who have channel programs. We now have millions of partners. We have a million software companies, 800,000 emerging tech companies. I mean, I, I draw these Venn diagrams that are just massive and they're millions of things. Millions of SKUs, millions of partners, million, 35 million customer situations. So when you start putting it all together, I mean, you're off the charts in terms of permutations and combinations. Uh, but, but in the end, you can actually roll it back into something that is more addressable. And, and that's points of influence. There's no way that an average partner with eight people in Wichita, Kansas is going to come across you know, 35,000 vendors or 4,300 security vendors. So you ask them, you know, what influences you to add something to your portfolio, switch out something in your portfolio, talk to your customers about something, which is very limited time that you have to actually, you know, influence a market. And it comes back to spheres of influence. And, you know, all these different things, like you said, in real time, I, I do have 85 magazines I can read. Many of them, you know, send me an email in the morning with, you know, the news I do have peer groups. I do have a hundred podcasts I can listen to 143 social groups. I have these associations. I, you know, I, I do have all these spheres of influence, but it rolls back to people. And, and one of the things like once I got it all listed out, you know, but a thousand different watering holes that a potential partner or potential vendors, an early stage channel uh, person might bump against. It came back to people. And, and I started measuring people inside of these watering holes who does, you know, the, the, the great podcasts and then moves around and does a great speech in Las Vegas, sits on the board of a large association, 
is on the front cover of a magazine, then moves over to a distribution event. I mean, who who is literally across earning the most points and being the most visible? And it started to get very interesting because it was the law of a few. Another great book uh, I read, Malcolm Gladwell, The Tipping Point, spent a whole chapter talking about Paul Revere and this point of the law of a few. That, you know, when a market has millions and millions and millions of things, it can get overwhelming, but it always comes down to about a narrow set of people. And in our industry, it's about a hundred people that are the most vocal, that are the most visible and the most influential in terms of as a partner, whether I would carry that security product from that particular company or not, whether I would talk to my customer about it or not. And that's the point of analysis that um, it is shocking, but it's, it, but it's, it, but it's, um, you know, the most powerful. It's fascinating. It, it comes back to the human factor and you're a futurist and I know you're always looking ahead. Yep. And when you think about the future, Jay, what makes you optimistic? Well, I, I'm often optimistic as a person, you know, even though all this real-time information can be depressing, um, the world is getting better on every single metric. And it doesn't seem that way sometimes, but all you have to look at is 10 and 20 and 50 and 100 and 1,000 years ago. And you can take any subject that you're reading about today, which seems to be a disaster, um, and it's better. The human condition is getting better. In our industry, it's doubling in size in the next decade. You know, the 4.3 trillion spent last year will become 8.6 at the, you know, a decade from now. And inside that doubling of an industry, there's a ton of opportunity as everyone wants to be us. Every industry, every person in every industry is looking to be more tech based. And that's where the world is going. So we're sitting in the right room. We're listening to the right podcast right now. And that makes me optimistic, but I would be asking questions if I'm participating in the most impactful way. And by impact, I mean, that could be driving those transformations, could be revenue, it could be profit, a bunch of different things. I'd want to make sure that I go back and ask those questions that I started with, you know, am I calling on those right buyers in technology, for example, the head of marketing in some companies spends more money on technology than the head of technology. Am I calling in the right industries with the biggest growth and the most need, uh, you know, obviously the most revenue and profit as well uh, going forward? Am I in the right place uh, to drive it, the right geography? Do I have the right, you know, vision? Should I move more regional or national or even international with my skills? Get more specific. Am I in the right segments of the market? that can take most advantage of, of what I deliver? Am I in the right product areas? There's 250 of them. And security, you know, there's seven layers and 17 layers below that. I mean, you, you can get very specific if, if I'm in the right growth areas. The hyperscalers are growing at 40. The SaaS companies are growing at 30. The security companies are growing at 27.7. If my business isn't growing by that, am I in the right swim lanes? Am, am I delivering the via the best model? Uh, to the marketplace as well. So these are all questions, you know, I would be asking, am I participating and I'm, am I going to overachieve an industry that's also growing, you know, faster than any other industry and doubling in size? Can I do the same? 
Yeah, lots of opportunity, but it's all about asking the right questions and seeking the answers that are going to make sense for you. So as we start wrapping up the conversation, Jay, do you have any other final advice for business leaders that are looking to achieve breakthrough performance? I do. And it comes back to peer. Um, there are, you know, the world's a big place and there is a law of a few, but I'm going to say that there's a hundred people most closely matched to you. There's this old saying that you're the product of, you know, five of your best friends. And in business, I would say the same thing. I would want to seek out the people maybe at a similar stage, maybe have had, you know, some more success, you know, maybe that's more luck or more success or whatever else, but I would want to, uh, dig into peer groups of some type. And it can be in any way that, you know, benefits you. It doesn't have to be sitting down in a room at a holiday inn for a full day, every quarter, not the standard peer group. It could be in out in social. It could be in podcasts like this. It could be in places that I can connect to what success journeys look like and start modeling myself after the best, you know, five or 10 people in my situation and learn the tips and the tricks and learn what, um, you know, how they look at the market and how they execute. I'd want to be just an absolute uh, vacuum of information for every tidbit I could get. That includes analysts that, you know, could come in and, and mention that and includes a bunch of other spheres as well that I mentioned before. Well, great advice, Jay. Thanks again for coming on, sharing your journey into your influence as a leading analyst, giving us really a behind the curtains view of, of the reality of what an analyst life is all about. Thanks again for inspiring us. Thank you for having me. And a reminder, please continue to give the gift of feedback to help make this podcast better. Go out, rate and review. You can do that on all the major podcast platforms, including Apple and Spotify. And as always, make sure to visit marketimpactnow.com for the latest in business leadership perspectives. So long until next time.